Our reliance on a largely carbohydrate-based diet is not a natural result of our evolution, but a change we forced on ourselves as a result of the agricultural, or what is now more commonly known as the Neolithic Revolution. It was, perhaps, the most momentous event in human history, slowly unfolding around 10,000 years ago. Humans were never designed, or should I say, were never evolved, to have so much of our diet reliant on carbohydrates, rather than our hunter-gatherer lifestyles of scavenging for berries with occasional meat. But once populations get to a certain size, and the natural habitat means they can't all live on animal protein, something has to change. Hunter-gatherers who solely lived this life would have often solved this issue through war and plunder. The invention of bread, however, changes society and humanity. It allowed people enough food if they were willing to stay in the same place. Bread, as far as we can tell, was an invention that took place in the Near East, though fragments of bread traces have been found far and wide. Following bread's invention, it allowed for the possibility of human settlements. Today, it's something of a fad to eat old caveman diets. That is, the diet of high-protein and natural foods with few carbohydrates. Yet, for those hunter-gatherers, an easy source of carbohydrates for the constantly starving would have been devoured by our Neolithic ancestors. For all of natural history, animals have needed constant food. And animals have found all ways to get through the colder winter months, such as hibernation or simply being able to survive weeks without dying. Before the Neolithic Revolution, humans were in the same situation. We had to search out food, hunt it down, gather it and share it with our young. After the Neolithic Revolution, it was far easier to store food over the colder winter months to ensure our own survival. I was watching the recent David Attenborough Netflix special where he meets an uncontacted tribe of hunter-gatherers in Papua New Guinea. They had no excess fat on them at all, and still lived with a lot of lean muscle. This is of course how humans evolved to survive, living on scraps and constantly hunting for food. Most of this food would have been berries or fruits, but some and occasional animal proteins. Yet human diet slowly shifted towards a reliance on carbohydrates. This caused a change in the human body so profound that man only regained our average pre-Neolithic height in the 20th century as proteins, fibres and natural foods, the type of food you are always told to eat as a kid, re-entered our diet following a better understanding of nutrition and increasing global economic trade, meaning more food could be produced with less. So how did humans ensure our survival? We started to rely more on carbohydrates as we formed a symbiotic relationship with parts of nature by domesticating crops and animals. We needed wheat or rice or dogs or cows to survive and settle down. And soon they needed us too. This human symbiotic relationship 
was more deliberate and surely more instantaneous, at least in evolutionary terms, than any other formation of a symbiotic relationship on Earth. The first place on Earth to have an agricultural or Neolithic revolution was in the Fertile Crescent. With the first civilization developing, now known as the Sumerian Civilization. The agricultural revolution, of course, would also develop in other places independently too. Modern day China, three places in the Americas, and an isolated area of New Guinea. The Neolithic revolution in other places was largely transmitted to much of Africa, Europe, Arabia, and India. What this meant was that all over the inhabited Earth, apart from Australia, was the permanent settling of lands, often near rivers or water sources. Over time, this would result in certain settlements, the ones with the best leadership, best crop yields, most stable population, and general good governance, along with luck, would grow in size. It was the second of these reasons, of having the best crop yields, which could mean more food in town, and more ability, and more reason, for people to join the village and settlement. This then might lead it into a town, and then maybe a city. What perhaps we don't quite understand was that people in pre-Neolithic times would have always and constantly been hungry. Food, like meat, would also go off very quickly. With no refrigeration, you would have to eat it or leave it. There were plenty of other scavengers, both human and animal, to eat up what you didn't. Therefore, any source of sustainable and reliable food would have been an incredible change in human lifestyles. This reliable food source could have drawn in many other families and many other tribes. The only thing you would have had to do is to submit to the ruler or the keeper of the grain. When the Neolithic Revolution started only 11,700 years ago, which in the grand scheme of history is almost no time at all, the process started the geological epoch of the Holocene. Human history all derives from this point and this revolution. Without settlement, we would have had no written word and therefore no history. The Neolithic Revolution didn't see an instant boom in population, like in the sense of the population boom in a later second agricultural revolution centering in Britain in the 1700s. The coming together of so many peoples in these early civilizations along with the increasingly close contact with animals for domestication purposes, led to a proliferation of war and zoonotic diseases, such as influenza, smallpox and measles, first beginning to impact man, and this would have killed many. As would have the famines, which were still prevalent, though the hunger was not quite the same as it was. Despite the early growth of cities, there was only small increases in overall population sizes, even in the most fertile areas. By 1492, Europeans, Africans and Asians had developed strong immunity to the zoonotic diseases over millennia. The Americas, whose cities were far more isolated, with far fewer domestic animals, had less zoonotic disease resistance. Along with the Industrial Revolution, which in the episode on the steam engine, I argued, could almost be called a mechanical revolution we are still dealing with, the Neolithic Revolution has ended. But like the Industrial Revolution, 
It has changed the way man has lived in every respect. What human settlement brought was that all subsequent dealings with the state and quote-unquote power is a result of this process of how humans begin to live together more successfully. Humans had never lived before in close proximity to each other. Rules and methods of how to live successfully closer together resulted in all legal, political and religious systems. Religion was no longer about how to explain volcanoes or the wind, but how to live together. One of the first written texts we have is the Code of Hammurabi, designed to tell people how to live in closer proximity to each other via codified laws. Later, we had religion and kings to help bind society together. But this caused war and plunder. All of these processes and results are still elements of the Neolithic revolution we still live with today. It took millennia for us to understand some of the results living in close proximity to each other would mean and what it would lead to. That you shouldn't kill your fellow settler would have perhaps been one of the earlier rules made up by any society. But some problems, like that of the quickly spreading bacteria and viruses, which rely on close human contact, that hunter-gatherers would not have faced, was an issue not really identified until the end of the 19th century. Even today, we are still having to deal with some of these problems, such as war, and especially today, zoonotic disease, in the now global society we live in. The later industrial revolution would see other issues we made for ourselves which we would have to solve. How cities of now millions, not just thousands, can live together. How industrial nations with industrial levels of war capacity can avoid war to avoid the death of entire populations. This seems an issue many are committed to solving but we still have to solve it. The Neolithic Revolution was so huge that it was a massive trade-off for mankind to undertake. Men were 5 foot 10, but shrank to 5 foot 6. Women from 5 5 to 5 foot 1. Feminist scholars point to the Neolithic Revolution as the primary reason for the development of gender inequality as society became more stable and men's interest moved from survival to breadwinning, and women's moved from foraging to childcare. The relative abundance of food moved mankind towards specialisations and divisions of labour. The result of all this for our sake, in looking at bread, was that this increase in agriculture, and the domestication of grains, and specifically wheat, resulted in bread becoming the primary food staple in the west of Eurasia. Bread actually predates the Neolithic Revolution, but given the evidence for it, it may be possible to speculate that the Neolithic Revolution started in order to gain more access to bread. Yet bread wasn't just limited to the original Fertile Crescent. The Europeans discovered when they went to the Americas something far less valuable for gold but for us, far more interesting. It was that Mexico had a maize tortilla bread. It wasn't loaves, but still bread. The Europeans may not have been too impressed. The Europeans have always felt very superior about their loaves of bread. But every society does think they're the best bakers. Very much like everybody thinks they make the best alcohol.
being the best maker of such staples as food and alcohol can give a culture a massive sense of pride. As with the French and their bakeries and vineyards, or the English with their family bakers, or the Viennese and their cafes, or even the Philadelphia bakers at the start of the 20th century. The reason for these different bread cultures is that around the world, each with their own climates and ecosystems, the crops available for growth were different. Yet many who did grow crops did develop wheat to develop bread. For humans, it was this reliance on bread that pushed us into a largely carbohydrate-rich diet. The sudden abundance of food over the last few decades has also led to an overabundance of carbs. We need the energy it provides, but we can have too much of it. It's very easy to eat, very cheap in comparative terms, and so we store much of it as fat. The body was only designed to carry a little excess fat temporarily, not permanently. Yet in every place agriculture was domesticated, the reason was a newfound source of rich carbs. Eight Neolithic founder crops were cultivated in the Levant. Emma wheat, einkorn wheat, hulled barley, peas, lentils, bitter vetch, chickpeas and flax. While rice was domesticated in China in 6200 BC. Sugarcane and some root vegetables in New Guinea around 7000 BC while in the Andes of South America, the potato was domesticated between 8000 BC and 5000 BC. All these crops provide different things. Rice is able to sustain two harvests a year, while the potato is one of the most calorie-dense foods. And when it reached the Old World, it was responsible for a quarter of all population growth in the Old World, from 1700 to 1900. However, if you've ever seen a population map of the world, you realise truly how many people live in Asia. This is because of rice. Rice is still responsible for nearly 25% of all consumed human calories. Some of that is worldwide, but it's mostly in that region of India, China, Southeast Asia and Japan, where today approximately 4 billion people live. Yet rice is an invention unlike bread. When I was a student, one of the great things about it is living with people from other cultures. In my student housing block was a large number of Chinese students. And what astounded me was still how central rice was to their diet. I don't know what I was expecting, but I might eat rice only once a week at most. The Chinese students most days had rice in their meals. But to truly see how many different type of meals with rice in there was still amazing. In Europe and European-influenced cultures, we have a similar relationship to bread. One of the more popular British TV shows is about baking, with bread making up a large portion of that. The French still go out for their croissants most days, and the bakery is a central part of central European life. During the recent rush of foods in Britain, during the first coronavirus lockdown, Bread was one of the central foods rationed on shelves to allow everybody to get some fairly. Further, many in Britain and the West turned to bread baking as a way to use up some free time. Bread makes up a central part of our culture, because for wheat-growing countries, it was the best way to convert grain into edible calories.
the result of bread's central nature in the West Eurasian diet, is what you might call one of the few genuine heritages of an Abrahamic tradition. Yet the relationship of cultures to their food does beg the question, is a bread central diet better than a rice central diet? Maybe. Wheat is a more reliable crop than rice, which produces far more but is temperamental. Bread is also easier to store, carry and transport than rice. In the West, because we grow primarily wheat, the making of bread, and bread itself, has a deep cultural, historical and even religious significance. The phrase, the best thing since sliced bread, is almost now used ironically. But think about how convenient sliced bread is. The most central food in our diet, now pre-packaged, pre-sliced and cheap enough for everybody to buy. My favourite part of this podcast is exploring unknown events of history, introducing new histories and trying to persuade everybody not to take things for granted. If society collapsed and we went back to having to fend for ourselves, bread would once again take its place as the central part of our diet. We eat a lot of bread in the West, yet have never really explored why this is. I've always taken it for granted. So to start, it's good to understand what bread is. It is made in predominantly wheat-growing countries, and can be made from wheat, but also rye, barley and oats. All you need to make it is flour, which is made from the grinding down of the grain, water and salt. But milk, eggs, fat, seeds and sugar can be added to enrich the dough. All of these combinations means that the varieties of bread is basically endless. It was once the case that the whiter the bread, the higher it indicated your social status to be. Though now, white bread is in decline for health issues. The cultural significance of bread is unparalleled. The 3,000 years of Jewish culture and heritage in the Old Testament features many allusions to the move to farming while it also shows the early significance of bread, not only in Jewish culture, but also in Egyptian culture. The New Testament has much in the way of bread significance, which continued the Jewish culture's relationship to bread and cemented its status in the rapidly Christianising Europe. The political importance of bread to the survival of the state is wrapped up by a simple Roman phrase, breads and circuses. Many revolutions in history started as bread riots, even in recent times, such as the 1977 Egyptian bread riots. Historically though, bread was more of a staple in the West, and it was central to the survival of the state. The first role of any state is to feed its peoples. This is the deal. You get food from the state in return from obedience. In the West, where wheat failed less often than China, we would have made less provision for famine. We are far more used to feeling full, and there are far less famines, and so when it does happen, people get angry. Wheat is also perfectly easy to store to last the winter. So if, in the West, you don't have bread, you will have trouble. We will see in the February Revolution in Russia in 1917 which to a large extent was initiated by a bread riot, or before the French Revolution where bread prices rose 88% 
how central bread was to political order. Bread in the West is symbolised in folklore, culture, religion and the politics of both Jewish and Christian society. So, give us this day our daily bread. Long before the Neolithic Revolution, the peoples were eating wild grain, along with their more regular berries and what meat they could get. But man can't live on raw grain. We don't have the teeth or stomach for it. We must transform grains into food through cooking. The basic seeds of a wheat culture was a shared desire to make grain more edible through sprouting, fermenting, roasting, boiling or baking. So this episode could also be a joint episode with the alcohol episode. Because one of the other things we most certainly did was ferment the crops. Most beer, pre-modern times, were essentially liquid bread. But we didn't just ferment the grain, we also baked the grain, which results in the release of more carbohydrates than the wild variety of grain. Bread, and therefore grain, also happens to be easy to store and transport. So of course to make bread from wheat, you have to get flour. This is done by milling the flour to grind it down. What actually happens is the separating of the bran particles from the endosperm. This systematic grinding of wheat started thousands of years before the Neolithic Revolution. With one archaeologist, Dolores Piperno, speculating that one group of hunter-gatherers burned stones at a dig site, suggesting a simple oven had existed before the Neolithic Revolution. The levels of instruments at even this stage of human history meant they could have made many different types of bread. There may very well have been artisanal bread makers making all different types of bread and selling them on to hunter-gatherers who might trade furs or meat for this bread. The slow shift towards agriculture and away for hunter-gathering did have some serious implications for the health and future of society. But I just want to stop and look at this shift. It was this reliable and easy food source that caused people to give up hunter-gathering and to begin settling. Perhaps it was from experiments with wheat they had found, or from suspicions they had, or perhaps the making of bread was general knowledge in the area. This then may have led to the first case of the free market rearing its head. A baker, or a group of bakers, suddenly had an easy-to-trade commodity. Over time, people would have relied more and more on bread. Then you suddenly don't have anything left to trade. So you sell your freedom. As philosophers such as Jean-Jacques Rousseau and Thomas Hobbes noted, 
To you, it might have just seemed like you were offering up some manual labour for bread. But what actually was the result was slavery. For people who were baking, the ease of getting bread, along with its taste, allured them to moving near a wheat field or existing settlement. Many would have given up their freedoms gladly for this slightly easier life. Man would not have started the Neolithic Revolution without reason. The easy access to bread may be one area that encouraged this. Philosopher Jean-Jacques Rousseau argued the adoption of farming led to slavery, while the Old Testament argues in the Jewish myths that farming did not cause for a great rise in living standards for many. Though perhaps the same can be said about the Industrial Revolution, in that, for many, it proved bad, but for mankind overall, it led to an increase in living standards and removed much danger of previous lifestyles. The Industrial Revolution may have led to the proliferation of dark satanic mills, but it did improve our lives in the end. So bread. Bread was of course made possible via the farming revolution, which enabled the domestication of grains and crops. For the first time, mankind was supplied with a near perpetual food source in good times, and the ability to store food for the bad times. For the civilizations that were growing up in the most fertile places, and having the control of the grain store directly linked, as Francis Fukuyama argues, to political order. The cities, kings, empires and nation-states that resulted was all formed in this nexus between food security and civilization. I've seen the argument that the Adam and Eve story in the Bible best represents the divide between gathering and farming lifestyles. At first, Adam and Eve are in a garden of plentiful food to gather, but then are expelled to a life of farming and herding. They were told to leave the hunter-gatherer lifestyle and participate in the Neolithic revolution. This was the beginning. The pioneering scientist and biologist Nikolai Ivanovich Vavilov provides the best scientific explanation for the move from the hunter-gatherer lifestyles through tracking of crop history. Born in Moscow in 1887, in 1916 he left Russia for Iran to track down crops. He believed that researching domesticated varieties of plants could inform Russian agronomy and plant breeding. The origins were such a long time ago, he wrote, that, quote, the history and origin of human civilization and agriculture are, no doubt, much older than any ancient documentation in the form of objects, inscriptions and sculptures reveals to us. Close quotes. When Vavilov came back from Persia, he had evidence of a huge variety of cultivated wheats, which he divided into three groups, each with different chromosomes. The three types were bread wheat, hard wheat, which includes emma wheat, and then einkorn wheat. Taking the Darwinistic idea that the place with the most variety of one species must be the place where it originated, 
This pushed Vavilov towards Southwest Asia for further research. He was clear from the varieties that this region specialised in soft wheat, whereas Russia only had six varieties of soft wheat, Persia had 60. From there, he narrowed down that the three different types of wheat must all have been cultivated in different places. Einkorn had different regions around the Mediterranean. But, according to Vavilov, the, quote, most likely the region of Asia Minor and the areas adjacent to it appeared to be the centre of the Einkorn variation, close quotes. From there, he worked out that harder wheats like Emma originated along the Mediterranean coast, where the harder wheats needed moisture to germinate, and when they started to grow, they were quite drought-resistant when mature. Vavilov believed that Emma wheat to be the bread wheat of the earliest domesticated wheats, and wrote about it as, quote, the bread wheat of ancient agricultural peoples, close quotes. He also had an interesting theory on the origins of the Einkorn variety of wheat. When the earliest farmers began growing wheat, they discovered other less wanted plants also wanted to live alongside the sown crop. This was the first discovery of weeds. Some of these weeds also became domesticated. Rye and oats were often found as weeds in the farms of this period. But they too became domesticated, as their natural hardness allowed them to be grown in poorer and less fertile lands. In more northerly latitudes, emma wheat that was grown began to be invaded by oat wheat and forced the farmers to grow oats. This growing of oats in colder regions led to a clear demarcation of wheat and oat growing regions. Thousands of years later, lexicographer Samuel Johnson defined oats in his very first dictionary as, quote, a grain which in England is generally given to horses, but in Scotland supports the people, close quotes. Vavilov listed other weeds too, that started as weeds before becoming crops. Flax, carrots, vetches, peas and coriander too. Yet the most important weed was the one infecting the grassy lands of the emma wheat and would become one of the follow-up wheat varieties used across the world, einkorn. Following Vavilov's intervention, the Middle East began to be seen as the cradle of agriculture. The lands between the Euphrates and the Tigris River, across the valley of Jordan, became known as the Fertile Crescent, and in this area, wheat barley, peas and lentils, chickpeas and flax were all domesticated. The earliest farming communities were recognised as beginning between 11,600 and 10,500 years ago. Yet traces of domestic crops have been found in archaeological evidence before this period. Across the southern Levant, in the Fertile Crescent, there have been carved out hollows found in rocks, which most now believe was used to grind grains into flour. The Natfian site in the West Bank is one of the best dug archaeological sites and originated from about 14,500 years ago, 
where there was a complex system of turning barley into flour, where it could have been the staple food of about 100 people or so. There is only one reason why they would make this much flour. To make bread. The inhabitants of this site must have gathered barley, threshed it, ground it into flour, and baked it at least 1,000 years before we know of anybody else doing it. This simple innovation started, in effect, the Neolithic Revolution. If you come to rely on wheat for food, it was inevitable you would start gathering wheat nearby, making a settlement to store and protect it, and then starting the slow process of cultivation of the wheat plant, starting domestication. The process of turning wheat from wild to domesticated was a gradual one. Yet the domestication of crops was more a consequence of constant interaction. How did domestication change the wild plant into a more human-centric version? Well, domestication has the following major impacts. The seed will spread to a more diverse environment and larger geographical range. There is a different ecological preference. There is a change from perennial, that's two or more years, to an annual plant. There are larger edible parts, less defensive adaptions, and better chemical composition, giving the crop a better taste and smell, while also lowering toxicity. We call this domestication, but there is in fact little difference between this and a symbiotic ecosystem. Such as when on a nature program we see, say, a bird and a frog develop a mutual need for each other. What domestication was, was a worldwide event where humans began to learn to live with nature and not against it. A bird allowing a small fish or the like to help clean it is called symbiosis. Two animals working together for mutual benefit. The domestication of dogs, cattle, horses, rice, wheat, maize, apples and more was a relatively quick process of symbiosis as the crops and animals learned to live and adapt to what humans wanted and to make themselves so invaluable to humans that we would use our efforts to ensure their survival. Once farming developed and crops and animals were domesticated in various ways these new societies without a horse, dog, wheat and cattle, would have been impossible. Domestication was the process of various wildlife learning to adapt in symbiosis with the highest level of apex predator ever to have walked the earth. Evolution by human selection. This domestication, of course, involved wheat. Wild varieties of wheat began to be found around 19,000 years ago. It was around 20,000 years ago when the last ice age peaked and things started to warm up. By 13,000 years ago, and the ice sheets of the northern hemisphere had retreated, leaving fragments of ancient ice as glaciers high up in mountains and in Greenland. This led to a 50% increase in productivity in the farmlands. Not that it would have looked like farms to us, just a lot of wilderness. Yet the grasslands were now a more dependable source of nutrition. 
ended as the atmosphere warmed and more carbon dioxide was present in the atmosphere. Crops grew even better. Yet, in the retreat of the Ice Age, there was a strange kink in this long, inexorable rise of progress, in the form of a millennia-long cold winter. From around 12,900 years ago to 11,700 years ago, food became scarce once again. The previous millennia had boomed in populations, and the humans who were now around needed more food. It's possible the expanding, yet fragile human population began to turn to agriculture in order to survive. Nobody will know whether the move to farming was intentional or by happenstance. Yet, on both sides of the Eurasian continent, peoples began cultivating and domesticating crops. Wheat in the east and rice in the west. Indicating there may be some correlation here between the warming and then the rapid cooling of the planet and this move to a reliance on farming. As we've seen through this series, innovation moves slowly. Huge big plans aimed at great inventions rarely work. Through a series of coincidences and a luck, with a bit of ingenuity and creativity, the human race often muddles its way through life and can solve most problems with its brain. But you don't go from the Newcomen steam engine to the steam locomotive in one swoop. It took 130 years. As the planet warming continued, after the millennia-long pause, the previously uninhabitable areas of northern Europe became inhabitable again. Britain became a teeming woodland rich in biodiversity and was still attached to the mainland, so people came and went as they wish, from France to Great Britain. Grains came with them, as they went around a large part of the world. Domesticated einkorn wheat spread throughout. The Danube by 7,500 years ago. Switzerland and Germany over 5,000 years ago. France by 7,600 years ago. And there are even traces of 8,000-year-old einkorn DNA in two separate places in England. But it's no surprise what we might call the first civilization developed in the area around the Fertile Crescent modern-day Iraq. The Sumerian civilization we have mentioned before. This civilization was all set up around wheat and bread. It even had large-scale irrigation systems for the wheat and barley fields. This led to an increase in agricultural production, whereupon it became possible to build a surplus of wheat which allowed cities for tens of thousands to live in with even less risk of famine than the hunter-gatherers. There's safety in numbers. Uruk, the first major city, which we've talked about before in this series, was also a bread-based settlement. The temple organised irrigation and farming, and redistributed food around the city. The increased specialisation of farming meant that not everybody needed to be a farmer. And so it allowed people to do other things, like craft manufacturing, or supporting scholarship, or writing the world's oldest surviving story. In the world's oldest surviving story, the Epic of Gilgamesh, what lifts Ainkdu from the level of deadbeat to civilised man is eating bread and getting drunk, 
both wheat-based activities. Other than the original baking of the bread, the first major difference in innovations in bread making is in leavening or letting the bread rise. Today we use yeast and so did the Egyptians, but beer can also be used as a leavening agent. Before leavening, bread would have always been flat, as is common in much of the Old Testament writing due to the lack of the Jewish tribe's knowledge of the leavening process. This can be shown in the book of Genesis, when Abraham asks his wife Sarah to, quote, make ready quickly three measures of fine meal, knead it and make cakes, close quotes. The need for haste from Abraham suggests this baking was too fast for the bread to be leavened. Three generations later in the Bible, and the Israelites are forced to visit Egypt, for there was, quote, corn in Egypt, close quotes. While in Egypt, the Jewish people encountered a sophisticated bread-making culture with settled permanent society, with fermentation of dough and baking of leavened bread. The Egyptians soon became quite the specialists in bread-making, with a developed agriculture and grain silos for storage. Greek historian Herodotus remarked, quote, Dough they knead with their feet, but clay with their hands. Close quotes. By this point in history, and bread had become central to Egyptian culture, with bread effigies used by the poor as sacrifice, and bread even beginning to look like it had sexual overtones. The design of Egyptian bread began to have phallic connections while the rising of bread to some also had sexual connotations. Odette Schwartz commented that these pagan rituals and sexual associations may be why the Bible was so ambiguous about yeast and leavened bread. Most of the work of grinding the wheat was done by women, slaves and captives. The grinding was done efficiently, but abrasive materials were still inside the flour which eventually ground down the teeth of the poor, and also some pharaohs. The first major development in the mechanisation of bread making also occurred in Ptolemaic Egypt, with the development of the rotary quern. The rotary quern had a large stone on top attached by a spindle and was rotated by a handle, kind of like a large pestle and mortar. Grain was poured through a hole and ground between two stones. Trying to make efficiency gains in the milling of wheat into flour is one of the longest-running themes of bread throughout the West. The Egyptians also developed closed ovens to ferment the dough. They were cylindrical and made of brick. The lower part was a firebox and the upper part had a large opening for the bread. The obsession with bread in Egypt soon spread to the Israelites during their sojourn in Egypt. 16th to the 13th centuries BC. During the famous exodus of the Israelites from Egypt, the Israelites were commanded to eat paschal lamb and unleavened bread, which is commemorated at Passover. It's said they took unleavened bread with them as they didn't let it have time to rise. Yet three other possibilities are often argued for as a reason for this emphasis on unleavened bread. The first is that leavened bread was a sign of Egyptian culture, not Jewish culture. 
The Jewish culture is of course very traditional, and so unleavened bread was therefore a return to the Babylonian culture and away from the Egyptian one. The other is that many nomadic peoples have carried unleavened bread with them, such as the Laps in northern Scandinavia. Third, Egyptian-style ovens are impossible to carry, and so unleavened bread would not have required their use. When the Israelites reached Israel, so central had bread become that it was written into Mosaic law that no flour mill could be seized in settlement of debt. There is constant reference to bread in the Old Testament due to the importance it possessed in Hebrew culture. Yet there is no evidence of the Jewish people knowing about leavening bread before Egypt. Mostly because Greece didn't have the best land to grow wheat in. But there's still evidence bread played a part in life. In the Odyssey, we learn that flour was milled daily for the residents of Odysseus's palace. And when you dined as a guest, you got past bread in a basket. The same thing often happens when you go to a good restaurant today. 3,000 years of unbroken cultural heritage around bread. Greece's main problem was that it had to import wheat from Sicily. The Greeks never really took to agriculture, preferring to think of themselves as shepherds, artisans or warriors. The Romans were different. They needed to organise their empire to provide food for everybody. It was still the key to political order. The Romans realised wheat didn't grow as well in some areas of Europe as others. And still the best place to get wheat was Egypt, which was considered its bread basket. And it was largely conquered for this reason. Britain also proved something of a bread basket, helping to supply the provinces around Germany during military campaigns. The Romans also realised how providing bread allowed the state to exert power over the lower classes. According to Pliny the Elder, bread makers established themselves in Rome in the 2nd century BC. Skilled bakers could turn out a variety of loaves to appeal to their customers. White bread was preferred by the wealthy over any other type. In one poem, a guest who requested wholemeal bread was laughed at by guests. In the story, Trimalchio asked for wholemeal bread because it was nourishing and caused less constipation. There were no bakeries in Rome, Pliny tells us, until 580 years into the settlement of the city. There was bread, but bread was baked at home by women and slaves. But as the empire grew, and more of the wheat-growing areas of the Mediterranean started to become central to Roman rule. Bread became central to the empire, and of geopolitical importance to the empire. Once bread started to enter Rome in a big way, the infrastructure changed to make sure all the grain was accounted for, and distributed to the bakers fairly. When Aurelian introduced a daily distribution of bread, rather than just grain, which had been the practice under the Empire Gracchi, the bakeries rose in prominence further east, and bread still had an impact. China had whole ritual ceremonies for bread during its long imperial history. Despite rice being its primary staple, the Chinese diet in the northern provinces 
was largely bread-based due to its climate making it remarkably similar to European-style diets. The Chinese harvests, both rice and wheat, until relatively modern times, were largely man-powered with little mechanisation involved. The flour often produced by the Chinese was harsh in nature, as it was in much of Europe. Bread in China was made for the upper classes, for the mandarins of society, and it was for those who could afford it more, rather than just having to rely on boiled rice. The inconsistent nature of rice yields, with the crop more easily liable for disaster, meant it caused more famines. This also meant that society had to constantly rely on high-yielding, but yet high-risk crops. There was a conscious effort in some places, such as Japan, to introduce wheat and flour into the country, and to set up port cities where wheat could be imported into. Bread, like much else introduced into Japan, has seen it become Japanized with various local bread delicacies. Anyway, we'll head back to Europe. As we know, the collapse of Rome caused much impact all over Europe, North Africa and the Middle East. And perhaps the empire's longest living relevancy is of its deep wheat and bread cultures spreading across its old empire. During the early medieval period, barley bread was the most commonly eaten grain, with much of the bread also unleavened. It took until the 11th century for wheat to overtake barley once again. In Britain, in the early post-Roman period, Flour was produced by the intensive labour of women and slaves using a pestle and mortar. Much of Anglo-Saxon Britain remained heavily reliant on bread. Perhaps this contributed to Britain's weakness in facing the Viking invaders. The Vikings hadn't quite moved to a wheat-based culture yet, and the Norsemen lived far more on protein-rich fish and meat giving them perhaps more protein and making them far more imposing than the regular Britain of the time. Though bread was eaten in the Nordic countries, it was still white bread for the upper classes and browner for the working classes. The exact timing of when grain came to England is impossible to know. The early history of early Britain is much debated. Whether there was trade with the Phoenicians or Greeks is not known. Some of the first reliable accounts of Britain is in the Roman accounts of Britain. When Caesar arrived in Britain, he found an agricultural peoples. It said Britain began exporting wheat to Gaul, now France. French farmers were unproductive even in Roman times, it seems. Some reports even suggest British wheat went up the Rhine River to aid the Roman military in fighting German barbarians. The use of bread and wheat in England has deep roots, none more so than in its language. The English word lord derives from the Old English halford, which means keeper of the bread. Yet, in the post-Roman times, it was not the lord, but the local baker who was responsible for the bread of the local area. This meant the baker was responsible for dealing with both regulations of bread prices and trying to maintain a profit for the lord of the manor, while also keeping prices cheap and fair to the consumer. Any conduit between those in power and the people will always see suspicions about their true motives, and the baker was the same. 
As a trade, the rise of the baker in Britain starts with the company of the white bakers in the city of London that formed during the reign of Henry II in 1155. It took until 1622 for the brown bakers to be an incorporated guild. The importance of bread in England remained in the Norman period. As the Norman reign slowly morphed into a British reign, the 1266 Aziz of Bread was imposed by Henry III to regulate the price of bread wheat. This enabled the poor to buy lots of lower quality bread at cheap prices. This remained in effect until 1709. A piece of political control by making the poorest most loyal to the state, as the price controls kept the poorest able to eat. We see similar things in Arab and oil-rich countries today. Price control is political control. 12th century Europe saw an increase in crop yields due to better climate. However, as the population grew quicker and quicker, the yields started to level off with the farmlands being continuously ploughed, which slowly led to catastrophe. In 1258, one of the worst famines ever hit London, with 15,000 of the poorest dying. From 1314 to 1316, the climate changed again, bringing more rain and famine across Europe. Yet this didn't stop the overpopulation of England and much of Europe. This was probably a major factor in the utter devastation of the Black Death, which killed up to a third of the population. It also contributed to the rise of the West. The population crisis opened up society against feudalism due to the sudden demand for labour in the surviving upper classes. One wonders if this over-reliance on bread and the subsequent overpopulation which resulted in the Black Death devastation was because for even those on a good ration of bread, bread alone does not provide a good amount of immune system boosting nutrients that a balanced diet would give you, causing the Black Death to ravage across Europe. This plague had been seen throughout history. This over-reliance on carbohydrates may have weakened the immune system, similar to the 1918 Spanish flu, which hit during a war where rationing and poorer diets may have also led to a weakened immune system. The feudal system of Europe of the medieval period was all based around wheat. The feudal system is an odd political system. Highly decentralised, with often a relatively weak monarchy, especially in England, where it took until Henry VIII to assert the divine right of kings. The feudal system in Britain was especially old. It was so strong that Anglo-Saxon aristocrats were able to promote a king from amongst their own in the Wittengamot in pre-Norman times, rather than the throne passing from king to son. While in post-Norman times, the English aristocrats were able to make the king sign the Magna Carta. The growth of Parliament too comes from this strong aristocracy holding power over the king. These laws grew out of the end of the Roman Empire, when in a sudden moment in 410 AD, Roman Emperor Honorius withdrew legions from Britain and said British counties and garrisons, quote, are forthwith independent and should fall to their own defences, close quotes. Slowly, the military leaders in the colonies in the power vacuum that followed 
began to act more like an aristocracy, not military rulers. This power was cemented by the general populace's reliance on the lord for bread. The tenants of the manor were forced to grind their wheat at the mill and pay for the privilege. The wheat mills were an important factor in manors and represented a large portion of the lord of the manor's income. All of this was in some way derivative of the way it would have been thousands of years ago in Sumer. The lord of the manor will make sure you survive, but you owe him pretty much everything. This system in Britain began to change following the Black Death and the Peasants' Revolt in the 14th century. Due to the amounts of death and the sudden abundance of food, peasants didn't have to rely as much on their lords. Due to a shortage of workers, they could demand to be paid in cash and not bread, meaning there was a need for a new group of professional millers and bakers. This resulted in the guild system of millers and bakers being set up to protect their unique right to make flour and bread. These guilds would only let one mill owned by the lord of the manor make flour in the neighbourhood. There was of course anger at the monopolisation of bread and milling in towns. But the lords who held these monopolies on bread realised how much money they were making from this new system. It turns out capitalism worked quite well. Though it would have helped capitalism, and especially the poor, if the lords didn't destroy any equipment used for private bread making in houses. The role bread played in medieval Europe was not just a nutritional necessity, it was also religious. Bread's role in Christianity can hardly go unnoticed. The opening of the Lord's Prayer, for example, is give us this day our daily bread. The harvest festival each year in the church originated to give everybody a last symbolic piece of bread from the last wheat harvested during the year and to give a toast to good health for the upcoming winter. Hot cross buns were baked at Easter with the cross of Christ on the top along with many other breads being baked specially throughout the year to celebrate Christian saints and festivals. The early years of the Catholic Church had, however, seen a change in the bread culture, moving away from using previous Jewish practices of unleavened bread and choosing leavened bread. But then, the Catholic Church changed its mind back again. I mean, leavened bread was only 2,000 years old by this point, and you can't expect the Catholic Church to be too modernist, can you? The later Protestant Reformation saw a reaction against anything papal, and so, once again, leavened bread became favourite in religious ceremonies. The other major move away from the Protestants in the bread area was that bread, once prayed upon during communion, literally becomes the body of Christ in Catholicism. The Protestants saw this for the nonsense, it clearly is. So far, we've not really seen too much technological process with actual bread making. As you can imagine, with the so-called Dark Ages, innovation was slow. But it was in the production of bread that actually saw some of the first shoots of innovation post-Rome. Innovations were introduced, which could begin to improve bread production. The use of mechanisation to replace something done manually by man or beast 
as we've seen, is a key marker of technological progress. The use of water as power was known to the Greeks, but in England its use as early as 762 AD is perhaps one of the largest developments in the medieval era for innovations. This was not industrialisation, but mechanisation. The water mills of Ebsleet, Kent, had water kept in a pond at high tide and directed down a closed timber channel to provide a jet and turn a wheel as the tide retreated. Horizontal wheels on a lower floor turned a shaft which connected to millstones on an upper floor. The water wheel required rapid streams to rotate it. By the Doomsday Book of 1086, there were 6,000 water mills in England used to produce flour. Over the medieval period, these water mills became used for more mechanised production, not only in the grinding of wheat, but also in the cleaning and thickening of cloth. The previous hand grinding of the rotary quern, which had existed since Egyptian times, was replaced by water power. This evolution of mechanising, the production of milling, draws you into considering the role milling played in the subsequent evolution of mechanisation and later industrialisation of Britain. The drive to mechanise was the result, as it so often is, of the high cost of labour in Britain relative to other places. The ease and success of these water mills also pushed the next development in mechanising the milling process. By the start of the second millennia, the windmill was being developed, which was sprouting up around Britain and Holland. Both countries where waterfalls were weak and rivers were slow moving, yet the winds were strong. In England, windmills were mostly situated on the flat eastern part of the country, still where most of Britain's agriculture takes place. By 1300, 4,000 watermills were in use. They covered the eastern part of England and were still being built up until the 19th century. Perhaps the most famous windmills in England were the ones built on the Isle of Dogs in London, whereafter Millwall in London was named after them. If bread is central to political order, it should come as no surprise that the reverse is also true. Lack of bread and food can help unravel political order. In France, bread was central to the revolution. Marie Antoinette never said the supposed, quote-unquote, let them eat cake, after somebody had told her there were complaints of a lack of bread within the general population. Yet sometimes there is hidden truth in lies. For the French, it was the inequality of food, and specifically the sharing out of bread that was not equal and fair. In 1789, 6,000 women marched on the Palace of Versailles, the home of the French monarchy, demanding bread. The women ransacked the palace stores and distributed the bread. This forced the king and queen to return to Paris, where they would spend the rest of their lives under house arrest. As they left the palace, thousands of women brandished the looted loaves of bread at the king and queen as they left Versailles. Yet the supposed failure of the harvest in the years before the French Revolution, due to an Icelandic volcano that stopped crops growing, 
pushed up the price of bread so high that many began to go hungry. Many historians point to these high bread prices as the true cause of the French Revolution. In the 18th century, bread was still very much the staple food in Britain, shaking off recent competition from the potato. Yet, productivity had only marginally improved over the last few centuries. Land was seemingly only able to produce so much wheat, and the mills only been able to ill what there was, as the population grew and grew. So what was the solution? Innovation. Innovation helped wheat output increase in Britain. Charles Townsend developed the four-year cycle of crop rotation. Thomas Coke revolutionised animal husbandry. And Jethro Tull, when not making great prog rock albums, was providing a greater crop yield from the land by the invention of the seed drill. East Anglia suddenly became the breadbasket of England. What would help was some sort of industrial process to allow for the mass grinding of wheat into flour. Water and windmills were good, but limited by Mother Nature. Britain was right on the edge of an industrial revolution, but this was no guarantee of its success. Other countries had gotten to a pre-industrial status right at the moment an industrial revolution could have taken off, but never got there. We'll never know how far away Greece or Rome were if their rise had continued, or how close some of the German states around this time were to industrialising. Yet it is often China and Bengal in India that have been cited as the two most likeliest to industrialise apart from Britain. The reasons why it was Britain, not China or India, as we saw on the episode on the steam engine, were varied. Yet bread production was a crucial factor in cementing the Industrial Revolution in Britain. As we saw on the navigation episode last time, Europe often cheated and got around the methods of doing things other cultures had taken generations to achieve. In that episode, we saw how the Europeans cheated their way around long-held cultural methods of navigation by simple use of inventions. Agriculture in Europe is similar. Chinese agriculture was highly developed to enable the maximum amount of rice to be yielded, making Chinese agriculture highly efficient and to produce enough food for the huge amounts of subjects there. However, because of the communitarian way the rice was produced, there was a slower demand for mechanisation. The more individualistic a culture is, the more you will prosper by driving mechanisation and increasing efficiency. The maximum greed is good isn't quite right, but greed can be good. The ability to produce more food with less manpower was needed in Britain. Concurrently, if you're a farmer or a mill owner and you can produce more with less, you will make more money. Everybody wins. At the same time, in the 18th century, Britain's population was growing. The mass amounts of immigrants to the new colonies weren't enough to what Thomas Malthus in 1798 predicted could happen, 
that when population growth outpaces agricultural production and causes populations to be limited by famine or war, disaster will strike. Britain needed more food for its growing population. The high level of British wages and the long history of mechanised milling meant there was only one way to increase productivity of millers in the long run. Employing more people would not have been a solution. The first use of the Watt and Bolton steam engine we talked about a couple of episodes back was for draining water from coal mines. The move from draining water to another industry was a key process of moving from pre-industry to actually having an industrial revolution. We've seen so often that what may originally look like a novelty product or a bit of a gimmick may not prove to be so. There is no reason China or India wouldn't have produced a steam engine, given a little bit more time. Yet in Britain, tapping into the steam revolution was critical in cementing the industrial revolution in society. By making the food supply and industrialisation rely on each other, Political power was now reliant on steam, and it would have been impossible to go back to a pre-industrial society and turn away from mechanisation as China largely did. Further, as proof of concept, transferring the steam engine into the mills showed how diverse the applications for the steam engine were. The long antecedents of attempting to mechanise milling is perhaps the oldest in the Western tradition. And it's no surprise that this became the first place where the steam engine would move from the pithead. This helped to start the process of the Industrial Revolution. This crucial link between industry and food supply was first located at the first industrial mill called Albion Flour Mill in Southwark, South London in 1786. Bread, which so impacted the Neolithic Revolution, would now be a key factor in the Industrial Revolution. The use of the steam engine for Cornish miners led some, such as Matthew Bolton, to wonder what else could be done with the steam engine. This is the capitalist and individualist instinct at work in Britain, by innovating and pushing the Industrial Revolution to stick and not to tail off. This wasn't guaranteed, but the business case for the steam engine in a flour mill was clear to Bolton. Firstly, there was only a little wind and water power in London, with the Thames not providing enough energy. This meant that wheat often had to be shipped up or down the river and then back again for baking, meaning saving the transport costs alone would help pay for the steam engine installation. Two 50 horsepower double acting steam engines were employed in the mill, and the first trial of this new mill, the dawn of a new era, instantly produced about 15% of London's flour. Despite this mechanisation resulting in the cost of flour, the people of the day believed it was making prices go up higher. The 5G causes Covid of 1786. Perhaps the longer lasting opposition to the new industrial mill is one that's still with us. There seems to be a proportion of any population, no matter how educated and how civilised that population is, that will push back against any sort of progress or change. 
William Blake and his dark satanic mills is perhaps the most famous example of this industrial pushback. Today in Britain, we're building a new high-speed rail route, creatively called High Speed 2. The project is constantly in the news because environmental protesters are saying it's destroying the environment. Despite it being an all-electric train and the most sustainable and carbon-friendly mega-project in history, and in part built to move away people from domestic air flight. There will always be people who hate progress. This reaction against progress was summed up in Britain at the time by one of the most famous poems ever produced in Britain, and did those feet in ancient times by William Blake. The poem has also been put to music and serves as an unofficial national anthem. Yet, what the poem concerns itself with is how Britain was rapidly changing and becoming an industrial nation. The effect these factories would have on the landscape and the sites of these dark satanic mills, in part, led to the Romantic movement in Britain. In the poem, Blake relates an apocryphal story of Jesus coming to visit England and Glastonbury. No doubt every year somebody at the festival does actually see Jesus walking around when they're on acid. But anyway... Blake wanted to highlight how Jesus would want to create a heaven in Britain in the industrialising country. And did those feet in ancient times walk upon England's mountain green? And was the Holy Lamb of God on England pleasant pastures seen? And did the countenance divine shine forth upon our clouded hills? And was Jerusalem builded here among these dark satanic mills? Bring me my bow of burning gold. Bring me my arrows of desire. Bring me my spear, O clouds unfold. Bring me my chariot of fire. I will not cease from mental fight, nor shall my sword sleep in my hand, till we have built Jerusalem in England's green and pleasant land. Blake never actually went to see the factories littered around the landscape of Britain. He was basing his entire poem of Satanic Mills based on the only factory he'd seen, Albion Mill. Economically, the mills, which were now proliferating across the country, didn't provide the best returns on investment. But in terms of significant cultural markers, they were unmatched. That the main food source of a nation was being produced on an industrial level was also a significant step forward. Reliable domestic food supply and an unmatched military of course leads to global domination and an ability to spread what you've learned across the world. If the American century of the 20th can be surmised as an attempt to push the world towards a global liberal capitalist democracy, Britain's era of domination saw it try and spread with its newfound industrialization. Britain had no existential threats. The only issues in Britain during this time were domestic. In one of those issues, which takes up a completely different meaning and significance to what people actually thought, the Corn Laws of the 19th century in Britain became a major issue of the day. The closest thing to a Brexit in the Victorian era, the Corn Laws are seen as a major turning point in British history today and vital in opening up Britain towards this liberal, global, capitalist democracy America would later see itself as. 
I just want to point out, when I say corn in the old British context, I am talking about wheat, not maize. After these ease of bread we talked about earlier to regulate bread prices was abolished, laws were then enforced to protect British farmers and landowners from competition from cheaper foreign imports. Laws encouraged export, but limited the import of wheat. This maintained profit for the aristocracy and landowners at the expense of the poor. In Manchester, the Anti-Corn Law League was set up by Richard Cobden and John Bright, who battled for free trade because it would lower the price of bread for the working classes. Oddly, this has become political again. The same arguments being made against European Union restrictions on food trade. The whole EU system is built to protect European and particularly French farmers against foreign competition, with high tariffs on lots of international food pushing up prices. And food prices is always one of those things that will impact the poor more than the rich. The anti-corn laws were supported by the Whigs, who represented the growing business classes in Britain. Essentially, they were the capitalists, versus the aristocrats of the Conservative Party. Despite its importance historically, the Corn Laws did not have a huge immediate impact on the price of wheat. It took until 1860, some 14 years after their repealing in 1846, for Britain to start getting the benefits. This was in large part due to the productivity of British farming already. By the 1870s, and bread consumption was levelling off in Britain, while meat and dairy consumption rocketed. Britain was perhaps the first country in history to return to a diet anywhere near a pre-Neolithic revolution style. Vegetables, dairies and meats gradually increased for those who could afford it and pushed up the nutritional levels of the British middle and upper classes. By the mid-1850s, and the making of bread was starting to see technological innovations. Externally heated ovens were introduced, while microscopes helped identify the yeast microbes in bread, for the first time giving an understanding in the chemical difference between leavened and unleavened bread. In the 1850s, the first reasonably efficient bread kneading machine was introduced, though it was too slow for mass manufacture. In 1859, member of the Chemical Society, John Dawlish, aimed to introduce carbon dioxide on a large scale into the bread-making process. The carbon dioxide was to make the bread rise under pressure. It was claimed the process would allow two sacks of flour to be converted to bread in 40 minutes compared to the 10 hours previously. The aerated bread company used this new technology to open tea rooms all over Britain. The aerated bread company became one of the most famous companies in Britain, with it featured in Dracula, Virginia Woolf novels and a T.S. Eliot poem, among others. Serving cheap meals by the use of this new technology, it never became a major bread baker, but it became a tea shop serving cheap meals for all. The Weatherspoons of its day, the name only finally disappeared in the 1980s. From 1877 to 1886, 
the repeal of the Corn Laws finally started reaping dividends for the ordinary Brit. With the opening up of the North American Wheatlands following the end of the Civil War and the finishing of the Transcontinental Railroad, cutting times from coast to coast from six weeks to six days. Wheat prices halved from £13.24 to £7.23 per tonne. The development of the American Wheatlands is part of the iconic nature of American history. This is because the tales of the Native Americans, the cowboys and the homesteaders instantly became famous all over the world. Victorian boys in England would play cowboys and Indians and read stories of the exploits of the cowboys. American wheat had become one of the most important forces during this period of American history, with the North growing maize and wheat, while the South only grew cotton. The starvation many in the South had to go through in the Civil War led to despair and starvation, while the loss of slavery meant other ideas for money needed to be developed, as much for food security as for economic reasons. The development of large-scale wheat fields in the United States starts before the Civil War, but its ending and the Transcontinental Railroad brought new opportunities at similar times. When Texan soldiers returned from the Civil War, they found the plains of South Texas inhabited by fat, mature cattle, descending from the cows the Spanish had brought with them. The value of the cows out here were tiny, but on the East Coast they would be much more valuable. This group of soldiers gathered up 2,500 cows and took them 1,500 miles north to the nearest rail terminal, where they were shipped off. The Native Americans had no objections to this at the start, as long as they didn't settle the land. But as this process continued and continued, more objections were made. 200 pitched battles between soldiers and Native Americans took place. For the Native Americans, their biggest issue was a refusal to unite to defeat a common enemy. Many Native Americans gave as good as they got, but their key problem was a lack of overall strategy to counter the US Army. Slowly, the Native American tribes ground down. In 1890, the massacre at Wounded Knee is often considered the last battle of this period. Yet, by this point, the desire for Native American cattle had pretty much depleted. Not only cattle numbers, but also the pastures. There was now nothing on this land, and it was free to develop. Meanwhile, the West was rapidly expanding as an agricultural force. As the Homestead Act gave 160 acres of undeveloped land to any family to build a house and live on it. The moving of Indian tribes from their ancestral lands may have been an awful thing, but it did open up the wheat lands. This cowboy era lasted only 20 years, yet it still remains one of the iconic images of the United States around the world. What took millennia in other places, with the slow depletion of wild meat and replacement with crops and agriculture took a mere decade or two in the United States. Much of the land stolen or conquered or settled was too poor for agriculture. The hard prairie soil was not ideal for crops. So the Americans innovated to develop agricultural machinery to make the land far better for farming. One simple invention was barbed wire fencing, which could stop crops being trampled by cattle as there were few natural boundaries on the prairie. 
They also developed a type of plowing suited to the soil to develop it as a wheat growing centre. Dakota, which in 1881 produced almost no wheat, produced 3 million tonnes only five years later. Between 1860 and 1900, these new wheatlands, coupled with the railroad, opened up areas for wheat more than ten times the entire food-growing area of England and Wales. What also helped, as we saw in the steam engine episode, was the development of larger and larger boats to enable the exporting of wheat across the Atlantic. We shopped from £3.35 a tonne of grain to £1.20 from 1870 to 1890, from Chicago to Liverpool. Globalisation was arriving. These ships could also transport live cargo such as cattle and grain to the old world, and on the way back could bring emigrants. US innovations continued, with a development in milling allowing for specialised grinding down of harder wheats that were being grown on the US prairie, which allowed for even more productivity to be gained in the bread making industry. These new machine mills could bring, sieve and purify the grain. By 1890, these new milling systems had won out. Grain could be fed into one end of the plant, and high-quality flour emerged from the other, with no human hand involvement. For many, baking was still a private activity. It was local and familial. If you were poorer, you might just buy the flour and bake it yourself. But as societies got richer, the economics of baking an entire loaf yourself proved too time-consuming. The 1871 census recorded 6,316 bakeries in Britain, each with an average of 3.3 workers. Bakeries were still tiny enterprises and local. By the First World War, this was becoming a problem. It was no longer economical to make dough by hand, even in bakeries. Bakers were told of the superior economics of the mixer. A new device to make dough, which was rapidly spreading across America, but in 1900 in Britain, few took it up quickly. Why? Many bakeries were family-run small businesses, and so automating this job would most likely have put cousins, brothers, sisters and other members of your extended family out of a job. Clear evidence for why Britain declined as a global power. It took until 1920 for all the major bakeries to realise they had to have some machinery to stay economical. In 1897, a Quaker, Joseph Baker, had done much to try and innovate the baking of bread, but when he died, his son sold off his life's work of an automated bread processing plant in Toronto, Canada. By 1898, George Weston, who bought the plant, was making 22,000 loaves a day. This increased to an incredible 1 million loaves by 1910. The result of all this new automation and increased supply do not lead to the type of increase in consumption you might think, but ironically a drop. Bread became so cheap that it was seen as a sign of poverty, not wealth. The wealthy could afford meat, fish and fruit. The increasing cheapness of bread also allowed the poor more money to spend on other things, not just sustenance. 
The increased living standards allowed for people to spend more money on clothes, holidays to the seaside and entertainment. In 1881, a British research group estimated 57% of the average wage was spent on food and drink, with bread accounting for 15.5% of this. By the death of Queen Victoria and the Boer War, and many of the poor were still struggling to afford bread, causing the British establishment a major concern. One reason was that it was increasingly evident in the difference between rich and poor. You might have thought this would cause a humanitarian concern for the richest, but they were actually more concerned with the war potential of the British, as the Boer War had shown. Germany's lead in the Second Industrial Revolution had been far more equitable than Britain's First Revolution, and its population was far healthier. Many of the poor in Britain still lived on the bread and scrape diet, which is exactly what it sounds like. It's also during this period when brown and white bread started to have its long-awaited showdown of which is the better bread. Now remember, white bread had been seen as the rich man's bread for most of history. But now, white bread was also starting to become affordable to all. It was no longer a status symbol that it had once been. While brown bread was seen as cheaper per calorie, with a high fibre content of brown having been noted by factory owners where the poor industrial workers needed to go to the toilet more. Yet brown bread did make a resurgence in social standing, with much promotion focusing on the more nutritious status of brown bread. All this resulted in the 21st century and brown bread perhaps having a better social cachet than white bread. The cause of brown bread was increased in 1911, when it was suggested that brown had more nutritional content than white, finally confirming what most people had already known. Further, research in 1926 argued that brown bread was more rich in natural fibre, iron, protein, essential fatty acids and vitamin E. So, by the turn of the 20th century, what did bread culture around the world look like? Well, bread in Europe was very class-ridden pre-World War I. Many in Europe still ate rye bread rather than wheat bread. In Norway, the most common was rye, as it was in Denmark. In Russia, one of the great exporters of wheat, most of the population ate oats and rye bread. In Vienna, the bread was noted for its excellence, and it was made from the very finest of wheats, yet still rye bread was given to the poorest. This fine Austrian bread was mostly found in urban areas in the towns and cities, rather than rural places. By the start of the 20th century, French bread was already seen as some of the best in the world. Well, not really French bread, but Parisian bread. A truly disgusting sounding black bread was used in some parts of rural France. But it wasn't just this Parisian bread that gained a reputation. In the US, Philadelphia bread was celebrated for its quality. You might have thought that by the 20th century, bread was beginning to lose its centrality to the food supply as it became more reliable, and as there were increasingly more foods to pick from. To some extent, this was played out for most of the West. Yet bread still remained like sex. If it's freely available to you, you don't think about it. But when it's not there, you certainly do notice it's not freely available.
The coming of the First World War would provide industrial countries all the way across Europe the first genuine disruption to the food supply for generations. It's therefore perhaps no surprise that there were revolutions. Feeding populations during the war caused a major alteration to food supply as you might expect. The German U-boats were attacking British merchant ships with abandon, with much food being carried on board. The U-boat campaign never successfully interfered with wheat supply enough to cut it off entirely. I remember at school we were told that during World War I, Britain had only six weeks' wheat supply left. It's only now I realise what a country without bread does to itself. Yet Britain survived. The one impact was it had to alter its supply away from Russia after the Bolshevik Revolution in 1917. Sometimes, looking back in history, you recognise what might have changed if history had gone different. The Corn Laws debate in the 1840s was something akin to a mid-19th century Brexit with the rift it caused in British society. While it didn't for a long time particularly reduce wheat prices in the short term, its impact was shown by the 1870s when Britain had a decade of terrible harvests. Had Britain not been able to import wheat from America and Canada back then, a rocketing price on bread, which was still the staple of the food diet, could have massive consequences, as could a lack of wheat in Britain after the U-boat campaign in the First World War. Britain never rationed its bread during the First World War, because it had put in place considerable effort to make sure that was the case, including a government subsidy to keep the bread cheap, costing a total of 162 million 500,000 from 1917 to 1921, about £7 billion in today's money. Lack of bread, however, mostly impacted the German war effort. German agriculture before the war was, stereotype alert, highly efficient and managed to produce much more wheat than in Britain. Yet the German farmers didn't pay much attention to the war effort. German agriculture ran at near capacity by 1914 already. Yet supplies should have been kept and the German farmers started to waste grain as they used their spare grain to feed their pigs and cattle. The German government tried to stop them, but it was too late. And when the Royal Navy impacted a complete blockade on German ports, the country was at crisis point. That the German Empire didn't collapse by 1916 was something of a success. The invention of fertiliser helped increase food supply, as did the conquest of lands to the east, following the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk in 1917. Though perhaps another interesting factor in Germany just about managing to feed itself was that American food aid to Belgium was getting stolen by the German army. Why was the lack of wheat such a big issue in Germany? Of course, lack of food supply is always a problem, but France managed to supply itself better. Britain could use its navy to ensure imports, was because it was dominated by the state of Prussia. Like other great military powers in history, the US Army and the British Army, along with Prussia, it has a very specific and specialised reason for its above-average success in military matters. The military-industrial complex in the US is why the US Army is so much better than everybody else's. Nobody can match the US for industry. 
The British army was so successful for military fiscal reasons. The rise of the British state was linked inexorably to the wealth of Britain and the city of London. In short, Britain could outspend any country when it came to war. Britain's generally higher wealth and high-quality banking system and financial system in the 1600s pushed it so far ahead it could use this wealth to become a maritime merchant power by 1914. Prussia became the most important state over the course of a few hundred years because of its domination under Frederick the Great, which really started its rise as great power and subsequently meant that Prussia would unify the German-speaking states. This was because Prussia had a highly efficient agriculture, meaning it could sustain large armies and large populations, and better fed armies, raising morale and fighting ability, more than its relatively small population size might suggest. In Prussia, the process of war and its relation to agriculture became intertwined, meaning any shock to the food supply would cripple its ability to fight. German agriculture was running at maximum capacity. The German Revolution, which started in November 1918, precipitated the ceasefire of the First World War. This revolution was started in part by the lack of food provision by the German state. Of course, the crazy thing about US power today is its domination of all three of these arenas. Today, it's still an agricultural powerhouse. It's the world's largest financial centre and the capital reserves of the world and it is still a true industrial powerhouse. In the early 20th century, bread was still central to life, shown by the long-lasting relevance of perhaps the largest ever bread riot, occurring on International Women's Day, February 23, 1917, in Petrograd, now St. Petersburg. Historian Orlando Figs proclaimed that the February Revolution in Russia, quote, all began with bread. For several weeks before February, the bakeries in Petrograd were running out, especially in the workers' districts. Long bread lines were forming. The problem, however, was not supply. There was enough flour in supply in the richer areas, but even in the richer areas, there were only a few weeks' bread supply left. This all came at the end of a third winter at war. An Englishman wrote home on the 23rd of February that, quote, the shops are not carrying such a full line of article and provisions, close quotes. This was so far the coldest winter Russia had seen for several years, with the Petrograd temperature at minus 15 Celsius. Arctic frosts and blizzards had buffeted the region, and railways and factories were closed. Thousands were laid off from jobs and just hung around the streets. Because of the breakdown of the railways, Petrograd was starved of regular supplies of flour and food and fuel. Women soon began to queue all night for a loaf of bread, only to be told there was none in the morning. Imagine the terror. During the recent coronavirus outbreak, there was a genuine concern of food supply. In the end, there was only really a rush for the toilet paper. But there were concerns with longer-lasting food quickly disappearing from shops and not being replaced. Imagine if the COVID-19 crisis was worse and there was a food supply shortage. The long-lasting food goes first, with no replacement, but bread is still there. Trusty, reliable bread, 
with the long supply lines of wheat and flour there in reserve. Then other foodstuffs stop being replaced in the stores. No fresh food, and then the frozen food start to go too. Bread is still there. Then the cereals start to go. Now you're really at the staples. Rice might still be there. But soon everybody would rely on food grown domestically and locally. But wheat and bread would still be there. But as soon as that becomes scarce, all hell breaks loose. The solution is always have a grain supply. Back to Russia. And with bread supply falling low, the people started to blame the speculators and capitalists, which was basically a way of saying Germans and Jews. Many also blamed the government, and even the liberals of Petrograd started to see that the bread supply falling low as signs of a treasonable government. On the 19th of February, the Petrograd authorities said they would start rationing from the 1st of March. Rumours spread there would be no bread stock at all, and people would be left unemployed and left to starve. In the panic, there was looting and fighting in the streets. After months, years, decades, perhaps centuries of unrest in Tsarist Russia, it all unravelled quickly. On a protest where women marched in the street for equal rights, there was no revolution in the air just yet. This protest was relatively diverse, with ladies of society, peasants and students all joining in. Though not many workers just yet. But as the afternoon progressed and the march continued, the march was joined in by women from the textile factories, who were later joined by the men who had earlier been protesting. As they walked down the street of the Vyberg district of Petrograd, they were joined by more and more, shouting bread and down with the Tsar. By the end of the afternoon, 100,000 workers had been protesting. All dispersed, but some looted shops on the way back to their houses. The following morning, workers held factory meetings throughout the city and agreed to march on the city again. Many armed themselves with knives, spanners, hammers and iron bars to fight their way through the police, to get themselves down to the affluent areas where the shops were better stocked. The strikes more had the feel of workers going off for war. One factory worker proclaimed before the march, quote, If we cannot get a loaf of bread for ourselves in a righteous way, then we must do everything. We must go ahead and solve our problem by force. Close quotes. By mid-morning, 150,000 workers had taken to the street, smashing windows and looting shops as they went. At Litany Bridge, a crowd of 40,000 overran a group of Cossacks as the crowd swelled to represent most of society, either as sympathisers or spectators. But it wasn't as angry as you might think just yet. The crowd was an enormous circus, according to those there. People got up and were expressing their self-professed right to free speech in full view of the police. When the crowds had dispersed, a statue of Alexander III, a monument to autocracy, had the words hippopotamus written onto it, a slang term for the Tsar. The next day, Saturday the 25th of February, saw even larger street protests in what virtually amounted to a general strike. 200,000 workers went out to demonstrate. Newspapers failed to appear, trams and cabs were sparse. 
Shops and restaurants closed, and all types of people were joining the march and heading to the city centre. Commentators now saw this third day of actions as bearing, quote-unquote, the character of a people's uprising. As the demonstrations now had a more political flavour, with red flags and banners appearing. The demand for bread was soon superseded by a call for the end of the Tsar. What started as a bread riot was moving towards a revolution. Clashes with the police became more and more violent, as the police tried to hold back crowds, as many appealed to the soldiers to come over to their side. The soldiers were just seen as peasants and workers in uniform. It was the police who were the Tsarist loyalists. The soldiers were hesitant to shoot on the violent and increasingly radical protesters as they battled with the police. These protests were taking place near where the 1905 revolution in Russia had started on Bloody Sunday, when the horse guards had started shooting down crowds in similar circumstances. By now, in 1917, the army officers were finding it difficult to get their men to obey orders. More than one of the men said, quote, This isn't 1905. We won't carry whips. We won't move against our own kind, against the people. Close quotes. Some soldiers were prepared to fire into the crowds, and some did. A platoon of dragoons opened fire near a shop, killing three. Most soldiers were firing over the head of the crowds of demonstrators. Some even started to join the crowds against the police. Even by this point in the crisis, revolution could still have been averted. The Council of Ministers in Moscow wanted to avoid open conflict, which might risk mutiny by the soldiers. Many in Moscow believed it was still just a bread riot. This kind of situation had been solved before, they thought, just by providing bread, and there was no reason to suggest this was any different. Nikolai Sakhanov, the Bolshevik diarist, wrote at this point, it was still just disorders, not revolution. Quote, give the workers a pound of bread, and the movement will peter out. Close quotes. Tsar Nicholas, however, ordered the military to, quote, put down the disorders by tomorrow. Close quotes. By the next morning, the centre of Petrograd had been turned into a militarised camp. Around midday, huge crowds of workers were once again assembled in the suburbs and marching towards the city centre. Some soldiers shot into the crowds, killing many. One incident saw 50 people shot dead by a training regiment. From this moment on, demonstrators knew it was a life-or-death struggle against the regime. Had there been an abundance of bread, there might have been some incentives for many to stop revolting. But now people had died, and this seems to be true of all revolutions, massed crowds become emboldened after bloodshed occurs, even if they might have been scared of it before. It becomes an us-versus-them scenario, kill or be killed. The fact that what these people represent is making you hungry anyway can push and push you to do something you would never ordinarily do. During the evening, people came to terms with what happened. One of the soldiers, who had shot into the crowd, 
said he recognised his own mother amongst those of the dead. Many said they would not shoot into the crowd again. During the evening, an officer started to abuse the soldiers for not shooting more into the crowd. The soldiers turned on him. He suddenly realised how powerful he was in the face of the angry and emotional soldiers, with their ever-weakening loyalty to the Tsar. The officer turned and walked away. Each and every one of the soldiers shot him in the back. The soldiers were now mutinous. This was a revolution. Fights started to break out between the loyal and rebel soldiers. The mutineers won, killing their officers and moving onto the streets with the people and heading out onto all sides. The mutiny of the Petrograd garrison turned the disorders into revolution. The Tsar had no military in the capital and had lost all authority. The soldiers on the streets gave a military-style organisation to the protests. Though they were no longer a protest but a revolution, which could now be aimed and directed. The mutineers stormed the arsenals, capturing 40,000 rifles and 30,000 revolvers. The Russian Revolution had begun, and all because of a lack of bread. Political order was still reliant on bread, as the most basic necessity for the survival of the state. Sure, the Russian Revolution may have happened anyway, but you can't guarantee that. The human survival instinct must give you a push to do something you wouldn't previously have done when you're starving. Think about your own country. Many people seem to be unhappy with their state's politics. Whether it's the USA, Britain, Europe or somewhere else, many are unhappy with political elites. Yet with the prevalence of consumerism and the huge supply of food, it seems to me to be quite difficult to get a revolution of this type unless there is serious damage to the food supply. Anyway, back to bread. And after the First World War, many of the soldiers came back unemployed, many finding themselves on the breadline. All over Britain, poverty was biting many. Bread remained the biggest percentage of income expenditure for many. Yet in a clear sign of where the polarity of power now was in the world, most of the innovations in bread in the interwar era were in the United States, many of which were later introduced in Britain. Machines for wrapping bread were invented in the United States in 1923, and the slicing of bread in 1929. The slicing machine, patented by Otto Roveder, sliced alternate knives in opposite directions to avoid defamation of the loaf. By 1933, 80% of bread sold in America was wrapped and sliced. Here we have sliced bread. The phrase, the best thing since sliced bread, is a phrase slightly mistranslated. The original advertisement phrase originally used to advertise that sliced bread was, quote, the greatest step forward in the baking industry since bread was wrapped, close quotes. So basically, it means the best thing in bread in the last five years, which isn't quite as poetic. But the phrase we have come to use, quote-unquote, the best thing since sliced bread, to me, is still quite profound. The struggle for the past 10,000 years of farming and agriculture in the West has been to make bread as easy and as cheap as possible, to feed as many people as possible. The white sliced wrapped loaf will never gain much gastronomical praise, but it should be admired in demonstrating how far mankind has come.
Marxists might claim the West is a consumerist society, which might be a true criticism. But while Marxism tends to lead to fights to even get bread, such as in Russia and China, the United States was making bread cheaper and cheaper for everybody to eat. Around 50 million people died in communist countries in the 20th century from famines, as J. Arch Getty states. And we'll get onto more of this in the general episode on farming. But there does seem to be a link with an altering political order and the proliferation of famines, especially in the 20th century. The consumerist, yet high-trading West, continued to demonstrate the advantages of large global supply chains and an open trading society. During the Second World War, wheat supplies were far more reliable than in the first. Importing to Britain continued from Canada, the United States and Argentina. While home production was also boosted from 1.7 million acres before the war, devoted to wheat, to 3.4 million in 1943. Following the Second World War, there was another spur of innovation in bread making. So to answer what was the best thing since sliced bread, it was the dough maker, the Chorleywood bread process, the sponge and dough process, and activated dough development. All these methods were essentially ways to try and make bread making cheaper. The first, the dough maker, was an attempt to get dough making as efficient as possible, capable of producing 6,000 loaves an hour, and this time in a continuous method rather than making batches of loaves. The technique allowed for uniform bread characteristics. This type of bread took off in the United States, but it didn't really suit British palates, with many referring to it as sponge cake bread. This led to British methods to try to do the same thing, just suiting British tastes. British industrial bakeries wanted to make dough on an industrial level, but using the batch process. The batch system would allow the British to use its own soft wheat rather than the long-favoured American hard wheat which had come to dominate. Even something simple as the hard and soft wheat has created a massive difference in bread culture. The French baguette is made from soft wheat, hence why it only stays fresh for a few hours, and means the French consumer will have to go to the bakery twice a day. Yet the reason for Britain's shift to its own soft wheats and away from hard wheat was the balance of trade crisis. Where British exports were dwarfed by its imports, causing the pound to lose value. An emphasis on domestic wheat led to the British method known as the Chorleywood bread process, with bread yields rising by a not huge 4% using this method. Yet crucially, it used British wheat which rose to 50% of Britain's use of wheat. So today, two-thirds of bread sold in the United States and the United Kingdom are the sliced white loaf. It is remarkably cheap, even sold as a lost leader in many stores. Jane Eyre earned £30 a year in 1847. A £4 loaf would have cost her a third of a day's salary. Today, a primary school teacher spends £1.80 or one-thirteenth of their salary, on bread. In France, their supposed better bread 
costs twice as much as Britain. Yet, it's just the taste of the bread. Many people like the soft, bland bread, as it takes on the flavour of whatever you spread on it, and it makes for good toast. Bread has not seen its death yet, but it's changing to an ever-changing market. The sliced white loaf might remain a standard, but the rise in living standards since the 1950s and 1960s means that bread is no longer an item in demand. Everybody can get some, and everybody can get some very cheaply. There are newer and tastier breads than ever before. Premium white bread has high protein and high fibre content than the standard white bread. There is more and more variety and more and more things you can do in bread. Burgers, hot dogs both use bread. And when you go into a store, you can still get the standard white and brown loaves, either sliced or unsliced. But you can also get burger buns, pizza dough, rolls, baps, bagels, crumpets, donuts, crosswinds, baguettes, croissants, rye, sourdough, naan bread, garlic bread, soda bread, pita, tortilla, and if you're in Scotland, bannock. Bread is now so commercial that almost all the way around the world, baking is a recreational activity. Only in a few of the poorest places do people rely on baking for sustenance. Most of us still use bread as sustenance, though not to the same level. Its convenience and cheapness is still the reason we use it, as it was 10,000 years ago. You can have it for breakfast or for brunch. You can have it in a sandwich or roll for lunch. You can have bread as part of the main meal, burgers, pizzas, hot dogs. Bread is still a central part of our life. I do wonder if people from rice cultures come to the West and remark to their friends back home how much bread people in the West eat. So we've charted bread. You don't quite know the impact bread has had on society and life until it's not there. Fortunately for us in the West, that's really never happened. We've always had a reliable supply, due to the wonders of free market capitalism, globalisation and mechanisation. The Abrahamic West could quite as easily be called the bread cultures, as opposed to the rice cultures of the Far East and the mixture that is the Indian subcontinent. Bread is an invention unlike rice, but bread is also a constant reinvention. From unleavened loaves to leavened loaves and then to the increasing milling via wind and water mills, followed by industrialization, commercialization, and then the impact of globalization on bread and wheat. Yet it's the political importance of bread that fascinates me. From the origins of society in the Fertile Crescent over 10,000 years ago, to the French, Russian and German revolutions, where bread played a crucial role in breaking the monarch's grip on society, showing its continued importance, not only as a food, but as a source of society itself. Bread is not a flashy or shiny invention, but it is vital to our lives. And for that reason, Bread is listed at number 57 on my list of the greatest inventions of all time. Mm -hmm.